Previously on Flying the Line, much of the new Duffy administration includes O'Donnell allies. This podcast is brought to you by the Airline Pilots Association. Alpha supports its pilots through a variety of resources, including Flight Finder, located in the Alpha app. Flight Finder is the most comprehensive resource for jump seat today, providing real-time access and availability for your commute to or from work. Download the app at alpha.org apps or in your smart device's app store. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, a bridge from the book Flying the Line, Volume 2 by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 9, Duffy Takes Charge, A Troubled Transition, Part 2. J.J. O'Donnell, still smarting from his defeat, declined to smooth a path for Duffy's transition team during the remaining two months of his presidency. Duffy's transition team, irritating to O'Donnell and frightening to the staff, seemed to threaten the principles of project acceleration. Put simply, this operating concept was meant to insulate the staff from direct contact with, and hence interference by, pilots. Skip Eglett, who served as executive vice president during O'Donnell's administration, agreed with first vice president Tom Ashwood that Alpa's professional staff was scared stiff. O'Donnell's strained relationship with Duffy was the root of the staff's apprehension. Perhaps by body language, implication, or negligence, O'Donnell frightened them about their future with Duffy. Aside from directing executive administrator Jack Bavis to cooperate with the transition team, O'Donnell did little to accommodate them. The team saw itself as entering unfriendly territory upon arriving in Washington and harbored suspicions about several members of the Alpa staff, who they believed capable of pursuing an agenda that might damage Duffy. Because of the strained relations generated by the election, The new ALPA president came to office with an immediate need to repair the internal division. But he also needed to hit the ground running. A number of serious difficulties demanded attention, all directly connected to the adverse effects of deregulation. Duffy's education in ALPA's ways would have to proceed simultaneously with his attack on these problems. In addition, he would then have to educate ALPA's members. Things moved very fast in early 1983. Duffy realized he had a narrow envelope of time to demonstrate his effectiveness to the membership. With the wounds of the Braniff debacle still fresh and more potential disasters looming, Duffy knew time was short. He held no illusions about a prolonged honeymoon with Alpa's pilots should things turn sour. In January 1983, Shortly after his election, Duffy launched his campaign to educate ALPA members about the threats they faced, using Aviation Daily as his forum. To shake the line pilot's complacency, despite the Braniff debacle, he declared that the greatest threat facing ALPA pilots was how unscrupulous employers could use bankruptcy laws. Duffy anticipated notorious airline manager Frank Lorenzo's favorite union-busting tactic 
months before it became a reality. Braniff had already shown the way by asking the courts to eliminate almost all the bankrupt airlines' existing labor contracts, ALPA's included. But all this seemed terribly remote to most ALPA members. After all, most line pilots believed Braniff was a special case. Their end of the Titanic was doing fine. The pilots on the other end were the ones in the water. In the aftermath of the rigorous ALPA presidential campaign, Duffy had to ration his cries of alarm. Otherwise, he would exhaust his credibility, and he would have to buy some time for himself as well, time to seize control of ALPA's infrastructure and bend it to his will. Transitions of power between hostile and opposed political factions are difficult under the best of circumstances. Unfortunately for ALPA, the transition between O'Donnell and Duffy would take place during the worst of times. Historically, ALPA members have been subject to long periods of complacency, interspersed with periods of intense alarm of difficult airline or industry developments. The shocking speed of the events in Duffy's first year were without precedent. It started with Braniff's bankruptcy, Frontier's attempt to void its contract by creating a non-union subsidiary, modeled after Frank Lorenzo's alter-ego airline, New York Air, and Lorenzo's multiple maneuvers elsewhere, which would fully engage Duffy's attention. Lorenzo's use of bankruptcy laws to break his APA contract at Continental meant that, in the future, pilots would feel more continuously threatened than they ever had before. Apprehensive ALPA members would now anxiously survey every action of their national leadership. Duffy planned to be more accessible to the membership than he claimed O'Donnell had been. He would begin with writing a monthly column in ALPA's airline pilot magazine, and his team would introduce new methods of communication, including a postcard that members could clip out of the magazine and mail in with their opinions, and plans for computer networking among typically gadget-crazy pilots. All this talk of change and getting back to the grassroots was a clear source of irritation to O'Donnell during the transition. Until January 1, 1983, he was still ALPA's president. The enthusiasm and energy of Duffy's supporters, now in ALPA's D.C. offices, struck him as pushy and premature. Duffy faced many problems, and the need to prevent any more Braniff-type debacles loomed high. The political baggage that lingered from the election campaign complicated matters. This was particularly true of the situation at Western Airlines. Following Braniff's failure, the Western pilots worried that their airline would be next. Western's troubles were almost a carbon copy of Braniff's. The pilot group had supported Duffy over O'Donnell, and Duffy owed them a political debt. The Western pilots knew that the best they could hope for was salvation through a merger with a stronger carrier, and they liked their chances with Duffy at the helm. The eventual merger of Western and Delta in 1986 played no role in these considerations, because at the time, nobody had any idea which airline would absorb Western. Western wasn't the only group preparing for merger. In fact, 
Duffy's most difficult internal problem was the consolidation of airlines. He would have no honeymoon in this area, and owing to the deep recession of 1982 to 1983, other dangers loomed. The need to restructure ALPA's intelligence-gathering apparatus was obvious. If events outran ALPA's ability to deal with them, pilots would inevitably blame their own union, not the industry. There's a saying from ALPA's earliest days, whatever goes wrong, ALPA will get the blame. Whatever goes right, the company will get the credit. Hank Duffy understood it. He knew that the way the membership perceived his first actions as ALPA's president would weigh heavily on their assessment of his effectiveness. But because of the difficult transition, Duffy would begin his term as ALPA president under multiple liabilities. The tension between first vice president Ashwood and Duffy was always there. It was palpable to close observers, particularly the other national officers. Duffy later admitted that the lack of a smooth transition between O'Donnell and himself meant that Alpa's membership was poorly served until he acclimated to the Washington environment. Although the problems in the industry were not of Duffy's making, they were now his responsibility. Some problems were general, affecting the industry as a whole. For example, the escalating tendency of managements to claim economic hardship and then approach each MEC for givebacks demanded a suitable national policy in response. Some problems were specific to an airline. For example, Braniff pilots were most concerned with getting their airline back in the air, and ALPA was essentially powerless to assist. Although the matter rested entirely with the courts, Duffy necessarily had to involve himself in it. The expectation of the members demanded that he adopt a high profile. As we have seen, Eastern MEC Chair Augie Gorse was the focus of the Braniff pilots' anger over Eastern's purchase of Braniff's Latin American roots. Because Gorse was also an EVP and one of Duffy's strongest supporters, it is logical to suppose that had the Braniff pilots been allowed to vote during the 1982 BOD meeting, they almost certainly would have gone with O'Donnell, not the candidate Gorse supported. But a ruling from ALPA General Counsel Henry Weiss, in his capacity as parliamentarian, denied the Braniff pilots the vote, granting only observer status at the BOD. Weiss's decision was critical, but in an election won by a mere 129 votes, all decisions are critical. For Hank Duffy, the issue would remain troubling. As we shall see, a substantial number of Braniff pilots would complicate things by acting as strikebreakers at Continental. Had Gorse and the Eastern pilots been able to predict the future, they surely would have made another decision, one like the United Pilot Group made when their airline acquired Pan Am's Pacific routes. The United Pilot Group's decision to take all the Pan Am Pacific pilots, while not exactly comparable to the Eastern Braniff case, worked to Alpa's benefit. Learning as he went, Hank Duffy worked well with the United pilots 
in structuring the deal that rescued the Pan Am pilots' jobs. In a show of concern for their fellow pilots, which contrasted sharply with Eastern and Braniff, United integrated the Pan Am pilots directly into their seniority list. Of course, the United pilots were economically well-off, while the Eastern pilots had endured years of economic stress. But the fundamental fact was that one group distinguished itself by its unselfish devotion to principle, while the other failed the test. By the time of the United Pan Am Pacific route acquisition, the lessons learned at Braniff helped procure the job security rights of the Pan Am pilots. As Hank Duffy settled into office in 1983, burdened with external threats and internal conflict, he would have no honeymoon period. A crisis of unsettling proportions was about to burst upon Alpa and his presidency. The roots of this crisis lay deep in the tangled history of deregulation and the man who would be the first to use it ruthlessly. That man was Frank Lorenzo. Next time on Flying the Line, a new breed of corporate leadership challenges the status quo. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 9, Part 2 of Flying the Line 2 by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 2000. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association International. Production copyright Alpha 2023, all rights reserved.